Hello and welcome to The Rundown, a new podcast from Politics Home. I'm your host, Alan Tolhurst, and each week I'll be taking an in-depth look at the biggest political stories with fellow Politics Home reporters and special guests from across Westminster. Joining me this week is our political editor, Adam Payne, the Labour peer, Baroness Diane Hayter, and Catherine O'Brien from the British Pregnancy Advisory Service. So this week, Adam, obviously Boris Johnson's been away on his sort of world tour. And obviously, some people think it's quite good that he was out of the country post those two by-elections. He's been in Rwanda for the Commonwealth Heads of Government Summit and then also the G7 and NATO Summit in Madrid. Two pretty seismic defeats, but it doesn't seem as though things have massively changed in Westminster. We seem to be in a bit of a, a sort of a holding pattern and that sort of there's still a lot of anger amongst Tory MPs, but actually it hasn't sort of led to any further kind of moves to unseat him, despite obviously the, the first sort of cabinet resignation we saw by, by Oliver Dowden. I think holding patterns are very accurate way of describing it. You're right, those two by-elections defeats were seismic, incredibly worrying. If you're a Tory MP in the south of England and you're looking at what happened in Tiverton, I think you'll be bricking it. And if you're a, a so-called Red Wall MP in, in that part of the country, you'll be looking at what happened in Wakefield and worrying, is that a sign of things to come? I think the reason why we haven't had this explosive response is that when we had the confidence for those few weeks ago I think the Conservatives probably losing those two by-elections was very much factored in to how Tory MPs were thinking about that vote whether they were going to vote against the PM so you're right we're in this quite strange place at the moment where the general consensus is that the PM's in trouble it's a matter of when not if he gets replaced by somebody else but Obviously, the 1922 rules mean that they can't act to force them to vote for quite some time, 12 months. So we're in this strange holding pattern, as you say, right now, where the Tory party is in a bit of a crisis. The government's not really doing that much. Mm. But at the moment, there's no obvious trigger to get rid of the PM. Mm. Interesting. And one of the things that actually, away from all that, that has had a massive impact. So we saw last week the, the overturning of, of Roe v. Wade in America by the US Supreme Court, which is kind of overturned the legal right to abortion a- across America. And obviously that's kind of sparked a lot of interest in abortion rights and, and access to services and, and actually the wider issue of, of women's rights in, in the UK. Diane, you wrote for us that our sister publication, The House Magazine, last month when it was first mooted that this historic ruling would be overturned. Obviously we got confirmation of that last week. What were your kind of feelings when you heard about it? Well, apart from the enormous blow to women's rights, which is... Well, actually, I think people's rights. I do think it's a men's issue as well as a woman's issue. Yeah. I come from it very much from a you know feminist point of view and have campaigned for abortion for you know a, lo- a long, long time. But the issue is, of course, it w- this won't end abortion. Right. There will always be abortion. And the issue is, will it be safe? Will it be legal? Will it be possible for people to talk about it? Will it be possible for poorer women to be able to get an abortion? Or do we go back to stuff that used to be in the UK even, where rich women were always able to get abortions? You know, there was nothing new in that. And less rich women used to have very dangerous abortions. So this is not about the ending of abortion. This is about the undermining of a woman's right, and I think a family's right, to have a safe and legitimate abortion. Part of the reason I think it is everyone's issue, if it was your daughter that was raped, that is a man's issue as well. If it was your wife who, at the age of 50, found herself pregnant because she thought she was going through a menopause and actually couldn't deal with it, that's also a family issue and for the other children there. So I do think it's a broader issue. Clearly, 
the big issue is the way they do stuff like this in America. Mm. The idea that people who cannot be removed, because justices are there for life, they include an 80-year-old man, and I think a majority of men on, on, on that, take a decision that affects younger women, because it's basically only younger women who get pregnant, or, you know, yeah. under, under 50, I find extraordinary. And you cannot remove those justices, yeah. and it ought to be for Parliament to decide something like that, as it should with assisted dying for those who've got terminal illness. Yeah. This should be a political, not a judicial decision. Yeah, a large part of that came from the fact that uh, when Donald Trump was president, he managed, through sort of a quirk of how it happened, that he was able to appoint three judges to the Supreme Court, which tilted the balance in favour of what uh, the Americans are called pro-life, but it's just anti-abortion. And, you know, there's a fear, obviously, that, that this ruling marks the beginning, actually, of, a, of a further attempts to roll back previously hard-fought rights in terms of things like homosexuality and same-sex marriage and that sort of stuff as well. Obviously, that's not something that's done quite the same in the UK. Those things, we don't have the Supreme Court issuing over those kind of things at the same time. But, but Catherine, obviously, there is a lot of a, a crossover with the UK and actually the way that access to abortion services uh, are being you know, attacked sometimes in the UK and, and how do you think that this, the kind of the Roe v. Wade, this moment, what do you think it's going to have as a help change some of those things in the UK? So I think that certainly we've seen this huge outpouring of rage across the UK in response to the Roe v. Wade decision. And so I think that potentially this marks a moment as absolutely terrible as it is for women's, for women's rights in, in America and also potentially in other countries around the world who might sort of see this as following a time to follow America's lead. I think that this is also a moment for the pro-choice majority in this country to make their voices heard. Mm. And I think it really sends that signal that hard-fought-for rights can be overturned, yeah. that we can't sort of rest on our laurels. So I do think that there, there is this opportunity for positive change here in the UK. However, absolutely, we know that this is going to embolden anti-abortion groups. At BPAS, we have a number of clinics that face regular protests by anti-abortion groups, and we're very concerned that this will, this will embolden them even further. So I think that certainly there is that anxiety around what it can mean for, for women who are accessing abortion, you know, today in the UK. And certainly we do have in Parliament a number of quite ferociously anti-abortion MPs who will use any opportunity yep. to roll back abortion rights. So, and indeed, there are a number of cabinet ministers who would welcome the opportunity to roll back abortion rights. So I think it is quite a precarious time. Yeah, it's interesting. I think it was brought up at Prime Minister's Questions about whether the legal right to abortion mm. would be put as the Bill of Rights. And Dominic Raab, who was filling in for Boris Johnson, said that the matter was settled, mm. which, you know, I don't think necessarily that it that it is. But what would you guys at BPAS want to see if this is a catalyst for some change? What what are the things that you want to see happen? Is it like you say, is it a prevention you know, of these buffer zones outside abortion clinics? And But what, what else do you want to see happen now as a result of this moment? Yes, well, I mean, we've been campaigning for buffer zones around clinics for almost a decade now. And action is woefully overdue. But ultimately, the legislative reform that we want to see is decriminalisation. I don't think there's a, a huge amount of awareness among members of the public and also members of parliament, sadly, the people who <laughs> control our laws. They don't fully understand them, it feels. There isn't that understanding that actually under a law passed in 1861, abortion remains illegal 
in Great Britain. The 1967 Abortion Act didn't decriminalize abortion. It didn't remove that, that criminal sanction. It provided legal exemptions where women and clinicians meet certain grounds. So it's still the case that any woman who ends a pregnancy from the moment a fertilized egg implants into her womb, if she ends that pregnancy without the permission of two doctors, she can face up to life imprisonment. Right. This is something that we need to, we really need to address because our abortion law is now over 50 years old. It was passed at a time when abortion was a surgical procedure, not a medical procedure. And I do think that, yes, it's absolutely, it's time to, for reform. Yeah, absolutely. And I know you were looking at some figures, Jay, that actually people are, women are still being prosecuted under mm. uh, for abortion, despite the fact that I think most people would think that the 67 Act had decriminalised it as part of this kind of raft of socially liberal policies that came through in the 1960s. Yeah, and Catherine talks about how there is a low level of knowledge in mm. the general public and among parliamentarians about this. And I'm... Say I didn't know enough about this because I was reading this morning actually a freedom information request submitted by the publication National World revealed that at least 17 women, potentially up to 29, over the last eight years have been investigated by the police due to this mid-19th century piece of legislation, which I wasn't aware of. And I read it and it's shocking. It's, like, yeah. it's bizarre. It, it's absolutely, absolutely bizarre. And I, what's interesting as well, Catherine, you talked about the outpouring in the UK. I think our political culture in Britain, we see ourselves in the US as being very similar. We speak the same language. We have a quite a cultural exchange, like a pop culture is very similar. So when it becomes clear that on social issues, we're actually quite different. I think the, imp the the response here is quite jarring. When something like, like this happens in the US, whether it be a curtailing of human rights, whether it be, I don't know, a shooting, for example, I, th I think the response here is, is particularly shocking mm. in perhaps a way in which it isn't in other countries, perhaps in Europe, because we do feel very close to the, to the US. At a public level, I think people, particularly who aren't fully engaged with this issue, aren't engaged fully with politics, that's why they've been so shocked by what's happened in the US over the last week. Yeah, it's interesting. You talked about parliamentarians not having a, perhaps a complete understanding of it, but the, there was an urgent question related to the, the Roe v. Wade ruling, which showed that actually, despite the fact that a couple of, a couple of MPs, as, as Catherine mentioned, were very much against a, a sort of um, abortion, it seems to be a, across the political divide, there is a broad pro-choice sentiment. And so perhaps there could be a movement to decriminalise it. Diane, what do, you, what do you kind of think well, on that? I mean, the only problem, I mean, I agree with a lot of that. And I, I think the idea that it's easier to have a gun and shoot kids in school than to have an abortion in America is extraordinary. But the interesting thing, of course, is the majority of people in America support right. the right to abortion. So, you know, Adam is absolutely right that we're very shocked by the response. But actually, most Americans are much closer to us, not as supportive as we are, but, but certainly a, major, a majority. So I think we also have to distinguish between Americans who are closer to us on something like this as they are on gun control than the American system whereby you have this extraordinary way of a, a Supreme Court making law, whereas in this country our Supreme Court is there to interpret law but it is not there to make law. And so it, it, all I wouldn't want to do is to... to blame on, on American people the results mm. that we're seeing there. They're closer to us than perhaps the, you know, the, the current situation suggests. Because Dominic Raab was asked in PMQs 
whether the government would accept the amendment. And I can't remember his exact words in response, but he said something on the lines of, we don't want this to end up in the courts like it is in the US. What's your assessment of, of that government position? Well, I mean, as you said, there is absolutely the potential for women to end up in courts mm. for undergoing an abortion. And I would say that the advent of, of telemedical abortion, which enables um, providers to send abortion medication by post for women for whom it's clinically suitable for them to take at home, actually really opens up women to prosecution in a way that hasn't been the case previously. Because at the moment, so yes, women are, are sent abortion medication at home. We've had inquiries, for example, from a woman who received the medication over a year ago and she miscarried before the medication arrived. She didn't need to use it. She kept that medication in her bathroom cabinet. Right. She got in touch with us to say, I'm pregnant now, I'm five weeks pregnant, can I use this? We had to explain to her that if she did that, she would be committing a criminal offence. So there is a real worry that, you know, women might end up accidentally, you know, committing a very serious criminal offence by using medication that is absolutely safe and effective. But they're just because of that lack of awareness of, mm. of the fact that abortion remains a criminal offence. And in terms of sort of this position that Dominic Robb's taken that it's almost this is settled it's sorted in this country well absolutely not because the UK government attempted to criminalize recriminalize telemedical abortion which was introduced at the start of the pandemic the government wanted to recriminalize it yeah that was a decision taken by our government so this idea that it's a settled matter I wish it was yeah. but it it really isn't. No, it took a campaign by Baroness Sugg to try and give MPs a vote, and they've obviously voted in favour to, to keep it. So it kind of shows that, like you say, there are attempts to roll back some of those things. And it, the legal situation is quite complex, because actually I think Northern Ireland is the only part of the UK where there is the legal right to an abortion, but it's also the part of the UK with the worst access to abortion services. And, and I wonder, Diane, if you think that actually this is an opportunity to get the government who've been dragging their feet in forcing the Northern Ireland government to actually put in those services that were passed by the government a couple of years ago? I mean, definitely, that is, that is the case. And I think I'm more sympathetic to the availability of early advice and of services than actually going down the path of trying to change the law. I think there are a load of problems there. It's a debate that I think a lot of families find very difficult, and I'm not sure I want this to be a, a cause celeb coming forward. But the provision of services, of safe services, of contraception as well, mm. and of good sex education, you know, the, that is all part of the debate. You know, I think for any woman, by the time you come to have an abortion, that is not where you want to be. This is no one's position of choice. At that point, of course, they must have the right to abortion. But there's a whole lot of stuff that needs to be there first, and particularly for services, which, as we know, you know, for younger people who don't know how to access it, for some doctors, for people in rural areas who don't like to go to their, their family doctor, all those problems that I talked about, you know, 50 years ago, those problems are still there. Mm -hmm. So, you know, how our education system, our nursing system, uh, our GP system, and and particularly BPAS, of course, the provision there for myself, I think though that is the real priority. Mm. The Labour MP Stella Creasy, who was one of the people who managed to get the Northern Ireland legislation through a couple of years ago, she's talked about tabling an amendment to the British Bill of Rights coming to, to give them the fundamental right to an abortion. That case that you mentioned there, Catherine, would that change 
stop the woman from potentially being prosecuted or does it need to go further to make sure that if you do have these medicines that you can be able to use them without fear of being of being prosecuted? At the moment, I haven't seen an amendment, so I wouldn't be able to comment on the implications for an amendment. But, you know, it is a very complex situation. As we said, this is legislation from 1861. There's other pieces of legislation that also potentially criminalise women and providers. So it would need to be unpicked. But I absolutely agree with Diane that the legal right to an abortion does not guarantee services. And in parts of the country, it remains incredibly patchy. And indeed, at BPAS, we see women traveling from as far as Scotland to clinics in London because they can't access services locally. So, yes, we need legislative reform, but we also need fully funded, accessible services. Yeah, and hundreds of women have gone from Northern Ireland to England and Wales in the past couple of years, despite the fact that abortion up to 24 weeks was meant to have been been decriminalized. Well, I I remember chatting to Brandon Lewis about this, and there are some horrendous stories of women having to cross the Irish Sea to the mainland. I think I'm right in saying the change spearheaded by Stella Creasy was put into law in late 2019, early 2020. And yeah, what, yeah, we're was, really yeah. two years on. Obviously, political instability in Northern Ireland hasn't really helped this. But and before that, when they were coming over, they couldn't get it free on the NHS. Yeah, Although yeah. the National Health Service is a national health service, when they came over from Northern Ireland, they then were not able to get a free abortion, even if they met every single one of mm-hmm. our existing criteria. Mm. This is slightly tangential but it did raise you know the democratic unionist party who want to be aligned with the rest of great britain in every possible way but <laughs> maybe not this when way. it comes to abortion yeah and you talk about brandon lewis he's the northern Ireland secretary and it he is, is yeah. essentially he suggested that if the northern Ireland executive the does not implement this law that the uk government will impose those services mm. but i think in a sense the issue there is that ever since the government said that they will take that action it means that it's unlikely the Northern Ireland government are going to do it because clearly, although there is, again, a, a broad consensus amongst the people of Northern Ireland, the political parties are very wary of, of enacting these sorts of things because of the sort of socially conservative aspects of, of Northern Ireland. But actually, it's clear that the Northern Ireland executive, whoever's in charge, is not going to put this through and, and therefore it does fall to the government to do it. And, you know, we've spoken to people around the Northern Ireland Secretary that it, a, ch- a change is imminent. But, you know, it's been more than two years and it still doesn't seem as though those services are going to be set up despite the fact that, you know, it, it's been enshrined in law. Well, I think the reluctance stems from the fact that the government's view is that ideally this is a devolved matter and we'd prefer it if the NI executive just got on with this. For the benefit of our listeners, <laughs> there is some shaking There's heads a lot of shaking uh, in, uh, in, in the recording studio. But obviously I, I think the penny has dropped. And look, the executive's not functioning at the moment due to the DP's refusal to enter the to enter government with Sinn Féin, largely due to his opposition to the Northern Ireland Protocol, which we've talked about in previous episodes. But really, it looks like we're not going to have an executive up and running for. But isn't it I, interesting? I, these big issues. It's always women that mm. are you know that are the, get the fallout from yeah. from mm. these issues. We've got a situation at the moment, whether it's about safety on our streets. Mm. You know, we've had another death two days ago of a woman beaten on the streets. It always seems to be whether you've got police cuts or whether you've got you know people not w- wanting to put services in Northern Ireland. It always seems to be women who get the, the you know the bad end of this, and that is something about our politics. Mm. I'm afraid that somehow our issues are not quite as important as other people's. Funny that. One of the reasons I wanted to speak to you guys both about it was, you know, it's not just about abortion services. It does feel as though this is a moment for wider women's rights. The the government's strategy about violence against women and girls doesn't seem to have had 
a great deal of success so far, as you say, there's more sort of high-profile cases. It's, it's whether this does feel as though it's a moment to help some of those broader issues as well. We had a debate in, in the Lords this week, particularly about the Istanbul Convention on Violence Against Women and Girls and Domestic Violence. This was signed 10 years ago by the government, right. but it was only brought into Parliament this week after 10 years to be ratified. Unfortunately, the government has made an exclusion which will particularly affect migrant women who are victims of abuse and where the the perpetrator is indeed basically their spouse. And these migrant women have no right to live here other than as the wife of a man who has the right to live here. If they leave that man, the perpetrator, they will lose their right of residence here. And the government, our British government, has put in what's called a reservation on the Istanbul Convention, which will not give those migrant women whose residency here is dependent on the perpetrator of the violence the right to stay here. I find that that is extraordinary that Mm. the government has done that. So there are these other issues, I'm afraid, where again and again a group of women just don't get the rights that are due to them. So Catherine, in terms of what happens next with this, because I, I think often in Westminster we have these moments where generally we're all outraged by something and we might have an urgent question or a special debate and you get some really moving, powerful statements and it feels like this is a moment for change and then often we sort of move on and and it's, it's not really reflected in action. What would you like to see happen next in terms of what the opposition parties do in order to keep the momentum going for, for the want of a, of a better phrase and, and kind of see this reflected in policy, in substance, in, you know, in forcing the government into action? I think that this, as a moment, I completely agree that sometimes it feels like we have these moments when there's sort of like this collective outrage that then dissipates. Mm. But I can't see that being the case with this because obviously Roe v. Wade, the Supreme Court decision was was step one to revoking women's access in many states. But, you know, this as an issue is going to keep running. I think that, you know, there are opportunities coming up. For example, I know that the Labour MP Rupert Huck, alongside Bernard Jenkin, is really spearheading an amendment for buffer zones around clinics this year. She's the MP for Ealing, and, and there was, that was where there was the first sort of test case, wasn't there, of being able to get a buffer zone in place? Yeah, yeah, via the local council. So what she's pushing for is an amendment that would implement national buffer zones yeah. around all clinics so that all women are afforded that protection that that is in Ealing. I think that we will make progress Mm. in some form this year, and I don't think that it's going to go away. Sadly, that's all we've got time for this week, but you can read more on all the biggest Westminster stories at politicshome.com. And keep up to date by subscribing to our seven-day-a-week newsletters by clicking on the link in the top right corner of the website. Thanks so much to our fantastic guests, Catherine O'Brien and Baroness Hayter, to my colleague Adam Payne, and our editor this week is Laura Silver. Thank you all for listening. Please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts to keep up to date. If you've enjoyed it, then please leave us a review. And if you want to get in touch, then reach out to us on Twitter at Politics Home or email us via news at politicshome.com. But for now, have a great weekend and be sure to listen again next week. I've been Alan Tolhurst and this has been The Rundown. <laughs>